necessary that the Messiah must suffer these things and enter into his glory. morning, Messiah. It's good to be here with you today. Uh, we're continuing, of course, our journey through Mark, and we're actually going to start out in the text this morning. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, you can turn it to Mark chapter 14. We're in uh, verse 32. Here's how the text goes. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I was six years old when I attended my first funeral. It was 2001, it was the funeral for my great-grandfather, and there's a distinct memory that I have from it. I'm standing there next to my dad, at his casket and we're sitting there for a minute and, and after a while I look up at my dad and for the first time in my life I see my dad crying now for me crying at this point in my life just wasn't something that I associated uh, with my dad I knew at that age that at funerals were sad occasions I understood that there was a weightiness to death but in that moment still all these years later I can remember looking up and just feeling a little confused and a little unsure of what to do because at that point in my life my dad was strong okay my dad had worked over a decade at that point as a brick mason working outside in the elements my dad built the house that we were living in okay I'm not not by himself he had like 15 other guys with him but still he could say that he built our house with his own two hands he was confident he was hardworking. my dad was was faithful to God and to the Pittsburgh Steelers, as anyone from Western Pennsylvania knows. And that's just the kind of guy he was. Back then and to this day, my dad was a man's man. But to see him in that moment, experiencing pain 
and sadness for the first time in my life. I, I just didn't know what to do. And so all I did was just stand there and look at him, watching my dad go through something that I'd never seen him experience before. Today we're in Mark 14, and we've seen a lot of things in Jesus' life so far, haven't we? We've seen him performing powerful miracles. We've seen him confronting the religious leaders of his day with fearlessness. We've seen him teaching with authority. And yet in this story today, we see Jesus falling to his knees and struggling with the weight of all that is about to happen to him. And just like six-year-old me standing next to my dad at that funeral, I feel like we're looking at Jesus' experience, something that we haven't seen him go through in the story yet. And it's a story of Jesus' life that I think can be a little bit harder to relate to than others. There are some of Jesus' stories, some teachings, that I think we just find a little bit more relatable. Um, over the past six years here at Messiah, uh, Pastor Chuck and I have gone back to over and over again that story of Jesus throwing a party at Matthew's house and inviting the sinners and the tax collectors from across town. And I think that that's a story that we try to embody in our ministries here at Messiah. I mean, two weeks ago, we had beer in the parking lot and bounce houses in the sanctuary. Okay, I think we know about the party Jesus here at Messiah. And then you get these other teachings where Jesus confronts, you know, those religious leaders of his day. And I think there's something in our American ethos that just loves a guy who stands up with confidence to authority. But in Mark 14 today, we don't have the confident Jesus. We don't have the party Jesus. We have a Jesus falling to the ground, feeling the weight of the suffering and the death that he's about to bear pleading and praying with his father if that suffering might be taken from him. I'm going to read this story, and I feel like I'm reading an experience that I simply just don't understand fully, an experience that I haven't gone through before. I mean, the fact that I am standing in front of you here today, alive and preaching, is evidence that I haven't been through what Jesus experienced. And so when I come across passages like these, I realize that it's time for me to listen to the voices and the stories of others. The stories of those who understand maybe just a little bit better what Jesus is going through here in Gethsemane. One of those stories I'll share with you today, it comes to us from uh, the second century AD. I want to tell you about a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop, and he's referred to as one of the apostolic fathers. And that was a title given to the church leaders who were discipled by the disciples. So you had Jesus, who passed his ministry on to the disciples, and the disciples who, who uh, passed their ministry on to these apostolic fathers. And so we're only one generation away from the book of Acts when we encounter him. And it's so fascinating to read about the church during this period and to read about the way they understood and viewed their lives. Because just 150 years after his lifetime, Christianity is going to be a legalized and accepted religion in the Roman Empire. But during Polycarp's life, Christianity is still a fringe religion that faces legalized and sporadic persecution. 
one of Polycarp's partners in ministry uh, was actually arrested, another bishop was arrested from his town and carted off all the way to Rome and executed for being a Christian. And so to believe in Jesus during this period meant that socially you were a reject, legally you could be arrested, and that death was always possible. And so to read about their faith, to read stories from this time, you're reading about people for whom suffering was not just a possibility. It was not just a, a hypothetical thought experiment. Suffering was a present reality. But it's the early church's relationship with suffering that is so countercultural. Because I think oftentimes suffering for us is, is something we like to avoid. Uh, but for them, suffering, it wasn't, it wasn't a taboo topic that needed to be swept under the rug. It wasn't the source of awkward conversations. For these Christians, suffering was actually a badge of honor. Polycarp wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, and in this letter, he's talking about Christians facing suffering, facing arrest, and he says that the chains that these Christians wear are the crown jewels of their faith, the crown jewels of those who have been chosen by God. The church at this time saw suffering in such a unique way. And they believed that when they suffered for their faith, that they were united to Jesus in a very special way. They didn't think that when they suffered that they were suffering for Jesus. They thought that they were suffering with Jesus. As if when they suffered, they were right there next to Jesus in that garden. And so for them, suffering was not an awkward topic to be ignored. Suffering was a deeply powerful and meaningful experience for them. Now, you might hear all that, and you might hear uh, Polycarp's words about suffering being the crown jewels of the faith, and you probably think, well, that's a lot easier said than done. Well, what's interesting about this guy in particular, Polycarp, is we only get one other account of his life, and it's actually the account of his own suffering and death for the faith. And we get to see the kind of faith that he's talking about in action. So here's the story. The Romans are going around the area, rounding up various Christians and throwing them in arenas to kill them. And the Christians in Polycarp's town hear that they're coming. And they warn their pastor and tell him to run away. And he's trying to be strong and stay, but he ends up listening to his church and running away, trying to escape and save his own life. And I love this part of the story because it shows us that the early church, it wasn't some weird death cult that was running out there trying to be killed and, and persecuted at every corner, okay? These were people who valued their lives, who saw purpose in staying alive for God's kingdom. And just like us, they had their own dreams and their own desires and their own purpose. And so Polycarp runs away. He runs away to a country house. Uh, but three days later, the Romans catch up they get to the house. But instead of continuing to run, instead of trying to bargain his way out of the situation, Polycarp accepts what's happening to him. And all he says in that moment is, may God's will be done. There's that prayer, like Jesus in the garden, here at his arrest, Polycarp praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. 
He's given the chance to renounce his faith and to reject Jesus. And instead, Polycarp says this. He says, for 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And for saying this, he was sent to an arena and killed in front of a crowd. When they say that the faith of the early church was built on the suffering of the martyrs, it's stories like his that they're talking about. I want to share with you another story, one that comes a little bit closer to our own time. The year is 1942, and Sophie Scholl is a 21-year-old college student at the University of Munich in Germany. Sophie was raised in a Christian home, and when a number of her family members were arrested by the Nazis, Sophie began reading her Bible. Her brother started a youth group in their town to counteract the influence of the Hitler youth on their peers. These were people who were dedicated to their faith. And Sophie saw what the Nazis were doing to her neighbors, to her, to her country. And she saw that what they were doing was incompatible in her faith in God. And so Sophie Scholl, this 21-year-old college girl, and her brother join a resistance organization called the White Rose. And the whole point of the White Rose was to create anonymous educational pamphlets so that their classmates and their peers would know the evils that were going on in their country, the evils that their government was doing. A government, by the way, that the church officially supported in that country, but that these Christians would not stand for. Sophie knew the cost of standing up for God's righteousness in a culture, in a society that killed those who spoke out. And a year later, in 1943, her involvement in the White Rose was found out and her and her brother were killed. But during her time, standing up for righteousness... And fighting against the injustices of the world, Sophie kept a journal. And in her journal, she recorded her prayers. And her prayers sound something like this. My God, I can only address you falteringly. I can only offer you my heart, which is wrested away from you by a thousand other desires. I pray every night that he might wrest my will away and subject me to his if only I didn't stand in my own way. There's that prayer again. Just like Jesus in the garden and Polycarp at his arrest, here we see that most difficult of prayers. Father, not my will, but your will be done. For me, these stories... Tell me more about what Jesus went through in that garden than any commentary I could read. Because in these stories, I see real people with real desires, real goals, real dreams for their own lives. And at any point, they could have justified trying to save themselves. Polycarp could have said, I'm a bishop. I'm important, right? My, my church, they need me. I'm too big to give my life for Jesus. And Sophie could have said, I'm 21 years old. I've got a whole life ahead of me. 
Who am I to stand up for my faith? And you know what? When I look around, I see a church and I see Christians who are doing absolutely nothing about the injustices in our culture. And so why should I do anything about it? They could have made any excuse in the book. And yet when that most difficult moment came and God called upon them to be faithful, they prayed that prayer of Jesus in the garden. Father, not my will, but your will be done. So let's go back now to Jesus. The scene that we see in the garden, it's actually a scene that we've been building up to for four chapters now. Back in Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus begin a journey. And the scripture there goes like this. It says, they, meaning Jesus and his followers, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now this journey that Jesus takes to Jerusalem, this is the journey that ultimately takes him to the moment in the garden. And it's the journey that takes him to the cross. But there in Mark chapter 10, do you see the way that Jesus looks there? I mean, he's got immense confidence and courage and strength not cowering in the back, but he is leading the way to his own death. I mean, think about that scene for a second, to see Jesus leading others and walking willfully towards his own suffering. But then in Mark 14, that suffering is finally here. And that journey has come to an end. And the Jesus in Mark 14 looks a little different than that Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Let's look back at those few uh, beginning verses of Mark 14. It goes, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. So to picture this moment, right, you have Jesus leading his disciples toward the garden. And he starts by leaving an outer ring with most of his disciples. And he just says, hey, stay here and, and wait and watch for a little bit. But Peter, James, and John, these three disciples, he takes further along into the journey, closer to his own point of suffering, and it's to these three disciples that Jesus bears his heart. And he lets know what's really going on. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I believe that it's in that moment that these disciples too are seeing a side of Jesus that they haven't seen before. Think about all that they'd seen so far. They'd seen those powerful miracles that we've talked about. They've seen their leader their Lord teaching with confidence. These three men in particular, Peter, James, and John, these were the three that were on that mountaintop when Jesus revealed his full transfigured divine glory. For these men, suffering was not meant to be a part of the equation. Which is why the first time Jesus says that I came to suffer and die, Peter has the audacity to pull him aside and rebuke him. Because in Peter's mind, this was a victory story. This wasn't meant to be a suffering story. In the eyes of these disciples, suffering was incompatible with the victory 
and the glory that they were expecting. But when Jesus invites these three men to that inner circle, this is exactly what he wants them to see. He wants those men who saw him in that divine glory to see him here in this place of weakness and suffering. And yeah, they fall asleep and they fall short, but he wants them to be a part of what's going on here. These men had seen the strength of Jesus on display so many times throughout his ministry. And yet here in the garden, Jesus shows them a new strength. They'd seen the the Lord who walked willfully to his own death, the the Lord who walked fearlessly to his own suffering. And here they see that same Lord bearing the weight of that suffering, falling to his knees and pleading with his father that that suffering might be taken from him, and yet at the same time setting aside his own will to do the will of his father, Suffering not for his own sake, but for our sake. Think about what this scene must have done for their faith. Think about what this scene does for our faith. You know, the book of Mark, it begins with this this confession that Jesus was the son of God. And when we see that part of the story, I think it would have been easy to assume that somehow Jesus walked very stoically and fearlessly to his own death, as if it were some kind of performance. And it's actually a good word for it because for so long, for centuries, people debated and said, if Jesus was the son of God, I mean, there was no way his suffering could have been real. It must have been some kind of performance. It must have been some kind of show because God just would not be willing to suffer like that. But Mark, by giving us this scene into the garden, I think he wants us to be sure that what we're watching is no performance. He wants us to know when he shows us the Jesus confessing his heart and falling to the ground, asking if the cup might be taken from him. He wants us to see that the suffering he goes through in this garden is real which means that the death he walks to from this garden is also real. And this means that that resurrection three days after this, that resurrection that comes, that too was real. And all this means that the new life that he promised us, that he promised to these disciples, that new life is real because this suffering was real. In the garden, we see the raw reality of the price that Jesus paid for us. And it's because of the realness of that suffering, we celebrate the realness of our salvation. This moment, this is what victory looks like in God's upside-down kingdom. Jesus didn't win victory by pushing for his own will, the way the rest of us try to win victory. He won victory by surrendering his will to the Father. Jesus didn't win victory through the strength of his own might. He won victory through the strength of his love. 
In fact, the same night that he goes to the garden, he tells his disciples, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And it's here in the garden that they get to see what that kind of love looks like and what that kind of victory looks like. And when we see this scene in the garden, we're reminded, I think, of another scene in a different garden. I'm reminded of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve faced this similar tension between the personal will and the Father's will. And in that moment in the garden, that first Adam gave in to his own will. And we see the defeat that came from that decision. But here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the second Adam, Jesus Christ, lay aside his will to do the will of the Father and win victory in all the ways where that first Adam brought defeat. Jesus overcame in all the ways where Adam caved in. In all the ways where we caved in, Jesus overcame. And while Gethsemane, in my mind, while it's a beautiful story of real weakness, don't miss that it is also a story of real strength. While one man gave in and brought defeat, another overcame and brought life. And it's with that promise of a new life that there's hope for us as we go through this life, isn't there? It's the same hope that was carried by those disciples and those early church men like Polycarp. It's that same hope that was held on to by young Sophie Scholl in Munich, Germany in 1943. For these people, this scene of Jesus' suffering, this wasn't just a, a moment to read about. For them, this was a moment they were called to imitate. And that's powerful. And you know, to, to be honest, Jesus is pretty straightforward in his life. And he says that in this life, you too will suffer. It doesn't matter how much money we make. It doesn't matter how comfortable we are, how nice of a nest egg we've got. Jesus said, in this life, his followers are going to suffer. But what if this moment in the garden is the source of hope and strength for us as we go through suffering in this life. I'm so grateful that we get to see Jesus in this place. Because first thing it shows me is that we don't have to pretend that when we suffer, we don't have to pretend that it's easy. We don't have to pretend that we like it. When we see Jesus pleading for that suffering to be taken from him, it shows us Man, God, you don't ignore our suffering when we go through it. We don't have to pretend like we're looking forward to it or like we're going to like it. We don't have to convince ourselves to be excited about it. And just like those disciples falling asleep, man, we too are going to have moments where we cave into our own will and give in. And isn't God good to forgive us the way he forgave the disciples those night, that night?
but when we suffer. Well, the New Testament says a lot about that. Peter and Paul wrote a lot about that. And throughout the New Testament, you see this theme that when we suffer, we suffer with Jesus. Peter, the, the disciple who would be crucified upside down for his faith. He wrote this for us. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or as a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. You see why the early church wore their suffering as a badge of honor. And I love in this passage how straight it is that Peter shoots us, right? He doesn't sugarcoat it. Just like Jesus, he said, look, being a Christian means that in this life, you will face hardship. But when we suffer, we are right there alongside Jesus in that garden. And that prayer he prayed for himself is a prayer that he prays for us. That prayer of, Father, not our will, but your will be done. And you know, when we suffer with Jesus, it means we're suffering with the one who faced it and overcame it, don't we? The one who faced the same struggle and had the power to conquer it. That's who we suffer with. And when I hear that, man, I find new strength as I walk through this life. And I think the church finds strength as they walk through this life. Because, yeah, I want to avoid suffering. And I'm going to guess most of you here would love to avoid it. And, you know, Jesus in that garden asked if he could avoid it. And so who are we to pretend that we're, we're stronger or, or any better than our Lord? But what you can hold on to is that when you suffer, you suffer with the overcomer. You suffer with the one who conquered all that you're going through. That's what Peter held on to, and it's what we still hold on to, to this day. So I don't know where you're at. Maybe you are an employee who, who works at a job where your faith is just simply not accepted. How difficult that must be for you to wake up five, six days out of the week and, and feel like you can't be yourself there. Or maybe you are the voice of peace and you've been rejected by people who are caught up in some kind of a culture war that are demanding you to be more angry and more divisive and more hateful than your Lord has called you to be. Maybe you are a student. Man, do I know how hard it is for you to show up at school and live your faith. 
how hard it is, how lonely it must feel when your classmates expect you to be someone completely different than who God expects you to be. Maybe you're just waking up every single day grieving the loss of someone you love, someone you miss, and you're grasping on to one piece of hope, the hope that there is a new life where you get to see them again. Doesn't matter what you're going through, doesn't matter where you are, what God's promise to you is this. He sees you in that place and he says, I am right there with you because my children do not suffer alone. God overcame suffering in that garden and he still overcomes suffering for you and with you every single day. The one who suffered setting aside his own will suffers with us. And one day, the day will come when that suffering comes to an end, when those strongholds in your life that seek to defeat you will one day be defeated. And for those of us who walk in faith and hold on to the hope of Christ, that day is coming. So don't lose hope.